This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Even if, for example, we leave this room in 10 minutes, we can still have a footprint of our presence in terms of pathogens if we were infected. And direct transmission route is something that we're very interested in. Also because it could contribute in enhancing the transmission cycle, even when the individuals themselves are not in direct contact. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it LAMA for short. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is another episode in our series from TED Med, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. Today, we're going to talk about sneezing. For those of us who try to stay healthy with our longevity in mind, the occasional sniffle or even a bad cold will inevitably come along. It may not be that significant in the long term, but the threat of infectious disease is real, whether it's influenza or another condition that really could shatter our ambitions of living a long and healthy life. It could happen suddenly, and it is a very real threat. Well, I'm joined by Lydia Bariba, who studies the physics behind the spread of disease. Lydia is the director of the Fluid Dynamics of Disease Transmission Laboratory at MIT. Lydia, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you. It's good to see you. And I guess at this time of year, the common cold, let alone influenza, is something that we all worry about. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a good time to be talking about this. Before we talk in detail about, I say we're going to talk about sneezing, because that's how it starts for a lot of us. Tell us more about the work that your laboratory does. Yes, so the laboratory focuses on uh, really looking at transmission from the angle of biophysics and fluid dynamics, and trying to um, sort of really link the scales between transmission understood at the epidemiology level, sort of at the population level statistics, to what we understand at the microbiology level, the pathogen sort of cell interaction. Because really between those two, to uh, scales, which are very different, there is very little that's understood from how do I infect a cell and to um, how that infection manifests itself in a full host and then from host to host and indoor spaces. And so that's the intermediate scale where we live. So is it fair to say, as I described it in the introduction, that we live our lives, we try to do as much as we can, right? We try to get enough sleep, we try to eat well and get enough exercise, those key pillars of, of longevity. But then something else could come along. And the kind of work that you do really just highlights the fact that we could all be struck down. And I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but at any moment with a rapidly spreading disease that perhaps previously we hadn't even heard of. Absolutely. So, um, of course, they're the ones that we hear about, so of seasonal influenza. But as now most people remember, we had also high pathogenic uh, influenza cases with H1N1 recently. There was a big scare with H5N1 a few years ago. SARS, MERS, which is basically related. Um, you can think about it as a cousin of SARS, is also co-circulating. And our hyper-connected um, uh, society now makes these pathogens very easily transmittable from remote places to 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 others, and 
we are also in very dense populations in urban areas, confined spaces. And so the routes of transmission and, and the possibilities of transmitting very quickly, something that we never heard about, uh, is real. But clearly it is flu, it's influenza that probably worries most people and, and, and perhaps is the most likely, at least in the short term, to come along and bite us. And maybe not affect us in the very, very long term if it isn't a serious outbreak, but it's certainly going to knock us down for perhaps a, a few weeks. So I'm curious, you work on the mechanics of, of transmission and the mechanics of, of sneezing. What, have you, what do you understand about the mechanics that perhaps we don't understand and we should take notice of? So the the aspect that we really um, highlighted was how are the routes of transmission depending on the potential host physiology and the environmental conditions. And up to now, what was understood was that with influenza or other respiratory diseases, droplets are coming out during, you know, even exhalation, coughing, sneezing, talking, etc. And the, the focus has been really on, okay, what drop sizes are coming out? And, and you know, are we talking about drops that will basically fall immediately or evaporate immediately? But that does not have information about space and time. And so what we looked at was how the host physiology, and so, for example, the lung capacity, for example, uh, other abilities to really project from coughing and sneezing, but also exhalations or talking, affects the ability to generate uh, what we discovered as being a cloud, a, a turbulent cloud that comes out during these exhalation events that, in fact, is a gaseous cloud that carries these drops and therefore could disperse them a lot more effectively than if these drops were isolated. And so the fluid mechanics involved here uh, is really the portion that we discovered first, but what we are looking at now is relating this to the host physiology, the pathogenesis and symptoms, and trying to parse out the portions that potentially we could measure in different human subjects or individuals that could tell us their possibility or ability to effectively transmit, even if they have or don't have uh, acute symptoms. So does that suggest that some of us are more likely than others to be key transmitters of diseases like this by the way in which we, we assist the spread of it? That's right. So that there is now evidence in animal studies, but also a posteriori in epidemics that some individuals transmit more than others. And the issue is that we have no idea how that occurred. Uh, is it really that the individual just talked to more people or are there inherent properties in the environment they were in or in their host physiology that and uh, immunology called response to the infection that enabled them to do so? And so we're sort of living in the dark in, for a very important question uh, because if a few transmit most, of the, the, the infection. This means that we need to tailor our um, interventions, monitoring and potentially treatment to these cases. And how close are you to getting an answer to that question, to isolating those, the kinds of individuals perhaps with a certain maybe type of metabolism that could be responsible for, for spreading most of the disease? So we are at, we, we elucidated the, the biomechanics and fluid dynamics of the sneeze and cough and now we are actually in a, in a series of multi-year studies where we are following individuals that are contracted, in, that are 
infected with flu at different stages and then when they're back in infection. So this is a multi-year study. So, and the idea is that, you know, with, with the window of 10 years, we would be able to have insights plus innovation that would come along with these insights that would enable us for these early detections and monitoring. I see. So you've got a, a group of people, presumably from different walks of life, living different lifestyles and with different physiology, different metabolism, looking at those individually over a very long period of time. So we're looking at them from season to season. So, and ideally, we if only if they are infected again that we are recruiting them. But we are also having in parallel other studies where uh, we will be following individuals more on a on a sort of regular basis if they are on campus. Basically, it's university basis. I see. That's interesting. So I'm just, I'm just curious for those individuals taking part in the study. They're obviously aware of the fact that they're part of a study. Are they more or less inclined to take preventative measures because they're aware that they're being followed in this sense? Um, so not necessarily at the at the beginning in the sense that we recruit individuals that you know, come to uh, the medical uh, facility because they are infected. Oh, so they're already sick. Exactly, right. exactly. So that we, you know, we don't actually randomly wait for somebody to be infected. Right, but then you might follow latch up on to them, them and exactly. follow up on them exactly. for future episodes. Exactly. That, exactly. Well, that's interesting. And you mentioned this cloud of droplets, to put it in, in lay terms. Is that cloud likely then to travel further and potentially affect more people? Absolutely. So the, the, the key insight and really the, the discovery was that looking at one drop size distribution or another does not give the quantitative information about space and time, but looking at the dynamics of how these drops are emitted is critical. And the cloud, which is trapping these drops and carrying them further, can extend that range by a factor of up to 200, for example, for drops below 30 micron or so. So that means that that cloud plays a major role in that long-distance dispersal in the spaces. And just a scenario then, an indoor space or an office or, or a train... How I mean, I think we generally worry about the person sitting next to us who is sneezing or maybe behind us or in front of us. And I think there was a study some time ago suggesting that the outside seats close to the doorway, maybe brushing shoulders with people getting on, those are the ones that you want to try to avoid because that's why you're most likely to pick up a disease. But I'm interested that the cloud you talk about, could that affect an entire cabin for example yes absolutely so the so if projected without obstacle in front of it so without basically using the elbow which is the still the recommendation uh, or you know um, other other basic obstacles along the way the range of this cloud could be meters uh, and by meters here I mean I mean five to eight meters and not one to two meters um, so that means that the range of the, the smaller drops trapped in this cloud can span a cabin an entire cabin so now the question is, how is the interaction of the ventilation also in that indoor space going to dilute or potentially concentrate uh, these, these droplets in areas? And so that's where, that's where there's more sort of space-to-space-specific uh, questions to look at. So based on what you understand so far, I understand that this is work in progress, what is your best advice to people, especially at this time of year? So definitely what can help the whole societies to not cough and sneeze in 
open openly, but to really use the elbows and not 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 the the hands, because obviously that means that you would redistribute what you caught everywhere. But also uh, making sure that uh, so the, the use of masks, for example, is something that can prevent. Uh, inoculation if somebody next to you is, is infected, for example. Uh, however, in terms of sneezing in the mask, one has to be also aware that if the masks are not tight, you could have acceleration of jets from the side. So so to, to be more aware of where to use these approaches depending on the confined space that one is in. It's complicated, isn't it? It is There's complicated. A, a lot to think about. And I think from the mindset of most people, we don't really think about it day to day. We get on with our lives and we, we as I said before, you just try to avoid that person who's, who's sneezing. But in terms of what you can do, we generally, and maybe this is, I don't know what you think, it's kind of irresponsible of us not to think about it as deeply as you've just suggested. Well, I always want to also you know, give a caveat that we shouldn't all become also too paranoid because some coughs and sneezes are just allergic reactions or irritation. Um, but in times of pandemics and ongoing circulating strains that are more or less pathogenic, I think that that's where all this information and, and the research that we're doing can help give better recommendations that then at that point, most of us should follow uh, very, very carefully. And you just used that word pandemic, and I was going to get to that because it, it's a terrifying word for a lot of people, for all of us. And I'm interested to know how serious you think the threat is of another influenza pandemic. Is it inevitable or could we do all the right things and, and prevent something like that happening in the future? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Right. And in fact, we just celebrated the you know, 100th year of the 1918 past uh, pandemic of influenza, which uh, decimated you know, 50 to 100 million individuals. And that's the estimate. It's definitely a serious threat. It is only a matter of time. And I think that all, most experts agree on that. And we really did not do enough to uh, put ourselves in a position that we could uh, mitigate it if if it was to come, let's say, in the next few years, um, because the, the, we have been heavily relying on on you know the, the 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 target of vaccine development, which is very effective and and powerful. But when we face a new pathogen, vaccine development can take a very long time and be basically deployed pretty much in the second part of the epidemic. And so in those early stages, before we have a vaccine or drug, and even after we have that, it's critical to also do science-based strategies to mitigate transmission, maybe adapt that mitigation depending on the part of the world and the environmental conditions and you know human subjects and confined spaces. And that's where um, really the gap has been, because 
the approach has been most mostly a reactive one. The investments in research have been mostly a reactive one. So there is a, an epidemic. We're now going to quickly invest in emergency rate response. But then the moment that's gone, you know, everything is withdrawn. And so what I'm really trying to do in, in persisting in really uh, tackling this problem is to, to try to change that and at least build the foundation so that we don't just, you know, base all life-saving life uh, recommendations on, you know, a, a rushed, quick research done just after an epidemic, but actually a sustained uh, program that goes very deep in understanding these processes, coupling them with microbiology and epidemiology so we are prepared. You mentioned vaccines, and uh, most people, I think, these days try to get a, a flu shot every year if they can. Are they getting better? So in fact, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a bad year to ask this uh, because mm. just last year, in fact, the efficacy of the flu vaccine was very low. Uh, it was estimated on average to be 40%. Um, and so for flu, the, the challenge is that the, the, the pathogen changes very quickly. And so we are, we're still not close to a universal vaccine that would tackle all the strains. And that's really the concern. And then in parallel, you have also you know SARS, MERS, for which we were lucky uh, in some sense that SARS stopped on its own. Um, but uh, other respiratory pathogens that are also major issue that are on the rise are uh, drug-resistant strains, for example, of tuberculosis. So it doesn't affect as much the developing world, but it's, you know, there are 30, 40 million people infected with TB still in the world. It's the leading, one of the leading respiratory diseases. And there the challenge is that drug-resistant strains um, are, are basically on the rise. And that means that the drugs, even the barriers that we built to have, in some sense, the, the luxury of not worrying about these things in the past century might be eroding. And so we need to pay very close attention to this. How did you get interested in this area of science? So I was um, working in, in physical mathematics and, and fluid dynamics, um, but always with an interest in, in health. And after actually the SARS epidemic, I was in Canada and I was very, um, very struck by the vulnerabilities. And, and so I wanted to move into epidemiology. And I, in fact, worked in that, in that domain for, for some time, integrating the sort of population data and large scale models. And that's when I realized that we really did not understand well the process of transmission. And I started started seeing connections with mechanistic and fluid dynamics and biophysics approaches, given that that was also my, my training and my background. And then I sort of, you know, married these two, these two uh, sides of me <laughs> uh, to try to uh, really build that foundation that I thought we were lacking to have effective uh, risk assessment and intervention assessment strategies at the population level. And then that led to very exciting new insights that could open new doors for other innovations at other scales. Now, I often ask this question of people when we're talking about longevity with researchers, how you have perhaps how you understand your own research and how you live your life based on perhaps what you've learned from your research with your health and, and potential longevity in mind. What are the key messages that come through to you based on your research? So Definitely, I am um, m more aware of uh, you know the the potential pathways of transmission around me because I study them, and so I am. I, I think that I am a little bit more cautious also in terms of you know the the, the usual hygiene uh, you know aspects of washing hands and you know of all of that. Yeah, and that's what, so. That's what makes me interested. How much more aware, and how does it change how you would go through your day compared with what most people would do? 
So that's so. I also um, I'm also uh, also you know and that this is a public health recommendation. You know, strengthening the immune system and and trying to really eat well and you know and, and have your your vitamins and, and all of that. So I think that we all do that. Yeah. Um, but but again, I mean, my I think that it's important to. Uh, to not become too paranoid in the sense that having, you know, going too much on the other side of living in a totally sterile bubble uh, could be counterproductive as well, because we need to also train our immune system to react to to daily threats. But um, when it comes to uh, really... Um, uh, demanding of our public health settings and hospitals to pay attention to infection control, which is, which is there, but not always the highest priority in, in the way that public health settings and hospitals are managed, depending on you know where where you are. I think that's something that for me have have really um, struck a chord, and and I think that if most people are a bit more aware of that, and in some sense demand that, uh, that we could then have more uh, response from uh, the, the 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 innovation management approach and priority levels uh, in hospital settings. So perhaps it is uh, to some extent it's how we behave uh, in public. That, that's presumably when we're most at risk when we're out and about using public transport using hospitals, which, as you've explained, can be potentially quite dangerous places. It's perhaps taking personal responsibility, but also demanding of others and institutions certain standards that could help us. Absolutely. When you consider your longevity, and again, this is a familiar question when we talk about living long and healthy, do you aspire to live to a great age? I think that living to a greater age without the physical strength and and functionality to to really appreciate it and you know enjoy life and and be productive and interact with others um, would not would not be something that would be the most appealing but if that's uh, coupled with the ability to still be an important part of society and contribute and interact, then yes, why not? Which is why I generally talk about health span as opposed to lifespan. So the number of years when we can optimize our best health. Absolutely. What is the next stage in your research? What are you doing next? Now we are uh, at the stage where we're looking at different stages of the transmission process, as I mentioned earlier, for different diseases. But for the respiratory part, uh, we're paying close attention to the differences in uh, environmental conditions and how uh, that can influence the potential persistence of, for example, pathogens in the environment. So that means that um, even if, for example, we leave this room, uh, you know, in, 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 in 10 minutes, we can still have a footprint of our presence in terms of pathogens if we were infected. And so that's that indirect transmission route is something that we're very interested in also because it could contribute in uh, enhancing the transmission cycle, even when the individuals themselves are not uh, in direct contact. And so we are um, looking a lot at this, this class of questions. And do you feel as if you're getting enough support for this kind of research? And I guess there's a certain level of collaboration needed to do meaningful research like this. You need the support of business, of commerce, of of governments around the world and of health departments. Is there enough awareness of the potential problem that you're getting support? Um, so in terms of collaboration, uh, that's something that, you know, I build that network and definitely the collaborators that I have, you know, understand and are, are really eager to, to, to be engaged and, 
And in fact, I have also some collaborators at the CDC in the hospitals. And But I think that generally it is something that somehow have disappeared from the priorities at the public health level, somehow in the middle of the last century for some reason. And I think that it was in part because of our optimism that improved hygiene, public health settings and vaccines would solve all the problems. And I think that it's really important at this stage, at the beginning of this century now, to look back and start thinking again about this as a very high priority because, as I mentioned before, antibiotic resistance is on the rise. It is clear now that there are certain pathogens for which we still will not have a vaccine for the next you know, 30 to 50 years. And so we need to be proactive and really um, giving science-based, uh, developing science-based innovation strategies from all angles, not just sort of the single bullet that will take care of the problem. And that's something that I'm working on trying to really convince people and bring up that awareness so that there is an, a change in the attitude toward these problems. Lydia, really enjoy this conversation. Thank you very much. How can people follow your work? So the best way to follow uh, my work is on the website of my group, elbouriba.mit.edu, so L B O U R O u-i-b-a dot m-i-t dot e-d-u Excellent. Well, I shall put those details in the show notes for this Perfect. episode. And I thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Really it was a good, pleasure. Good to see you. Bye. And uh, our website is uh, lamapodcast.com double l-a-m-a podcast.com You can follow us in social media at lamapodcast and I'll send out some more details from Lydia's work and uh, her website as well. Many thanks to everyone at TED Med for helping us with this episode and thank you for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.